Good morning, church. Um, hey, we're going to talk this morning about God's patience again a little bit more. You know, God is a patient God. We talked about that a few weeks ago in, in 2 Peter. And I think what happens, the reason why patience for us is so difficult is that it's because of our expectations. We set these expectations even of ourselves, and then when those expectations are not met, um, that's when grumbling comes in and our patience is tried. And as Heather and I are reading through the Old Testament right now, we're in the book of Numbers, and you know what I realized this week? God is a very detailed God. He absolutely, I mean, that's probably the, not the wisest statement ever, but he is. Just look outside. Look how our bodies function. Yes, he's a very detailed God. But he's also a very patient God with us. He's so patient with us. And what I also I, I noticed as I'm reading through and as the children of Israel were rescued, I mean, you got to think, this is a, a group of about a million people walking through the desert. That's a lot of people. And you can imagine the patience of God as, as his people walk through. He sets them up perfectly, and yet they still grumble against him. And so as I'm reading through um, Numbers right now, I realize that God does not like grumblers. Woo. He deals with them pretty severely. And I found out that in myself this week, I can be a grumbler. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands to join me. Dana Buck, thank you for... He was adjusting his glasses, but I take that as a... Yeah, but I can... I find myself as a grumbler at times, and I just... I'm thankful that God is patient with me, that he's patient with us. And as we, as we study through and we look and see what God is doing, what am I supposed to do? What is my attitude? What is my response to him? I've been given this amazing gift of his grace and his amazing gift of faith and his amazing gift of the Holy Spirit who flows and works in me and through me, right? We all have, as followers of Jesus, we all have this gift. We have the gift of the Holy Spirit in us. That he works in us, yes, but he also flows through us. And I want to talk a little bit about the revival, just, just briefly, probably, probably briefly, maybe not briefly, um, this morning, um, if you're familiar with what's going back in Asbury, but Bill actually said, hey, can I come and share for a couple minutes? And uh, Because Bill has experienced revival. Um, this week, actually, Jesus Revolution, the movie, is coming out, and it's based on the revival in Costa Mesa, California in the 1970s. Bill and Jody were part of that. They went to Chuck Smith's church. And, uh, and so he's just going to share real briefly uh, this morning about uh, revival and what he experienced. I just want to say this. I was standing back there this morning, and I looked over our congregation, and it reminded me of standing in the little country church on the edge of town. That's where Chuck Smith, there's a song written about that. That's Chuck Smith is up front. Lonnie Frisbee is sharing. <laughs> long white robe, long hair. But revival was in the making at that time. God was pouring out his Holy Spirit upon people. Young, old, it doesn't matter. 
I looked at, we're not, we're not past the age that revival won't touch our church. Revival won't touch our communities. Revival won't come into our state. I don't care what kind of parties in power. Revival can and God will bring about revival in the last days. God's light shines brightest in times of darkness. We live in times of darkness. Church, I admonish everyone in here to seek God, to be on our knees and ask him for revival in your heart first. David prays in Psalms 139, search me, O Lord, see if there's any wicked seed of sin in my life, weed of sin. Take it out. We used to sing that song, uh, you remember? Let it be real, Lord. And, you know, first revival, repentance. I remember at Chuck Smith's church, Chuck would get up there and say, I'm going to ask every one of you to repent. To repent. It's not weakness. It's strength. It's power. And sometimes we associate repentance as, oh, no, that's weakness. No, it is strength in God's eyes. And his power will work and mighty in your life and in and through you as you, wherever you go. When God's anointing comes upon you, and it will in many, many ways in the coming days, be ready to share. I, I took a, <laughs> I went over to buy something on offer up this morning, or not this morning, but yesterday, Saturday. I didn't know what was going to go on. One hour of sharing the Lord Jesus Christ with a woman who was out without hope, a woman who was beaten down with drugs and people that was beaten on her. She had bruises all over her. Oh, it was such a blessing. I didn't know what was going to happen, but I was ready. God, may we be ready to share everywhere we go. Revival starts in that manner. Not only was, did I see it in Southern California, no fear. There is no fear. When God's anointing is upon us, we don't need to be afraid. We don't need to be afraid of man, circumstance, nothing. We can march in his power and nothing will touch us. Nothing will touch us. We went to New Orleans after 10 years of rev in revival in California. My wife and I started a church down there in Bourbon Street called Solid Love Ministries. Revivals took place, one after the other, one after the other, young people coming in. I couldn't believe it. We, hundreds of you, the runaway kids, the men who were desolate trying to walk down Bourbon Street and get a high out looking at all what was going on in the open door. And yet, from that little coffee shop, Solid Love Ministries, grew a big church on Canal Street, so big our neighbors were just, they were calling the police. <laughs> we couldn't stop it. It was revival. And that church today is very strong. Victory Center, you know, over yeah. 5,000 in, yeah. in attendance. But they're, they're just loving Jesus. They are praying for a revival. In fact, Paris Bailey, the pastor's wife, had a chance to go up to Ashbury and share what a blessing it was. She shared it with Jody. I'm just saying, church, as a member of this body, let's be a part of this by praying and asking God to come and fill our community and our county and our state with his power and with his love.
No man, no demon, no circumstance is going to stop it. Mm. As we pray, church, that is God's recipe. That's awesome. So good, Bill. Can you take this back to Kim? How many of you have been following what's been going on back in Kentucky? Any of you? A few of you? You know, it's important that we look at situations like what is going on there and, and, and not seek the situation, but seek Jesus, who's in the midst of that situation. It started off with just some college kids who, who were going to chapel because they, were, they have to go. If you go to Asbury College, you are required to go to chapel on Wednesdays. Um, and you can only miss so many. So it started off with just going to chapel. It was a regular chapel. And then after chapel, there's just a group of students who just wanted more of Jesus. And they, they have a choir. It's a very conservative college. They have a choir up on stage. And um, it's not so conservative anymore. Um, but, and they just continued to worship afterwards. And there's people walking out. You know, it's lunchtime. And people are kind of out in the courtyards and stuff, and they could hear, why, is, there's, why are they still singing? Why are they still doing worship inside the chapel? And so people started going inside, and as soon as they would get close to the building, they could feel the presence of God. And so people started just going in, and, then, but then, and they wouldn't leave. You know, one guy went and got his mattress out of his dorm and brought it in and set it up, and he, people were sleeping, leaning up against the walls. People just aren't leaving, and it's just the presence of God showing up. And, you know, when you look into it and you wonder, like, what causes this revival? It's what Bill said is people were hungry for him. People who have said, I have had enough with everything else and I just want Jesus. And what we're seeing here in Ashbury is it's on a larger scale. It's not just one or two people, but it's on a large scale. And now what we're seeing really is you do get revival chasers People are driving from all over the place, flying from all over the place because they want to experience what's going on there. But it started off with just a group of students who said, I am hungry for you, God. Um, and there's a quote from one of the students and I thought was very profound. He said, we're all encouraging each other to have a posture of radical humility. It's not about us, it's about Jesus. And that, that captures me. To have this radical posture of humility, that is just not something we talk about. Because we're supposed to have it all together. We're supposed to be put together. We're supposed to, I mean, look at my social media account. Actually, if you do, you don't see anything because I don't post anything. Except today I posted about the potluck or the Sunday lunch, whatever you want to call it. This radical posture of humility. And how do we get to that place? James chapter 4, verse 10 says, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. That is a great verse. We all love the part where it says, He will lift you up. God, I want to be lifted up. God, would you lift me up? Well, how do I get there? In fact, what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles. If you need a Bible, we have Bibles. Raise your hand, we'll get you one. I want you to turn a couple books before uh, 2 Peter to James chapter 4. And we might get to 2 Peter today, I don't know, we'll see. Who, who knows, there's been bears in the parking lot, it's going to be a unique Sunday. 
How do we get there? How do we get to the place where we are lifted up? Well, James says that we need to humble ourselves first. What are the verses that come before the lifting up part? Well, halfway through verse 6 of chapter 4 of James, he said, God opposes the proud but shows favor or shows grace to the humble. I love that verse as well. Am I living in pride? Am I living for myself? Have I only focused on the kingdom of myself? God opposes that type of lifestyle. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace and he gives favor to those who humble themselves before him. Verse 7, submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter into mourning and your joy to gloom. We don't read these verses very often. We pick these verses. We pick the one before. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. I can handle that. I want to talk about the verse where he takes my mourning and turns it into dancing. And he takes my ashes and makes them beautiful. But for us to get to that place, we have to humble ourselves before him. James says that we need to submit to God. Man, do we do that? Do we submit to him? That means that whenever we're living our lives, which we do every single day, we are asking him, we are in conversation with him, God, is this what I'm supposed to be doing today? You know, Jesus lived his life like that. In fact, multiple times in the New Testament, Jesus says, I only do what the Father asks me to do or tells me to do. Now, what would our lives look like if we actually lived that way? God, what do you want me to do today? I submit my life to you, God. And then he says, resist the temptations that the world offers to us. There's temptations everywhere. So we resist those things. James says, resist the devil and he will flee because of our submission to God. But we have a responsibility there to resist the temptations. We are told to come near to God. And when we do, he's right here. Now we know that God left heaven in the form of his, uh, the son Jesus and he came to us because we couldn't get to him. He made the first initial move. But now the invitation for us as humans now is come near. Revelations, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. It's the famous picture, if you can remember it. And if you look at that picture, there's no doorknob on the outside. Look at the picture. Go back and look at that, that old picture of Jesus standing there and knocking on the door. There's no doorknob there. The doorknob's on the inside. So we open the door and says, come near. Jesus is here. James says to come near to God. And when we do, again, he is right here with us. So when we come near, when we humble ourselves and we come near, then what? It's what Bill mentioned. It's like we were reading each other's notes this morning. It's a radical repentance. It's a turning around of the things that we've been doing ourselves and for ourselves. And it's turning our hearts back to him. It's saying, God, what do you want me to do? 
I'm tired of doing everything that I do on my own. I want to follow you. I want to be led by you. So what does radical repentance look like? Well, James lays it out here. Wash your hands. Wash your hands? Is it, do I have to wash my hands for 20 seconds? I was in a place the other day and had a sign, wash your hands for 20 seconds because it's, they still had signs from COVID. And I said, 20 seconds? If you actually count it out, that's a long time. You can tell I don't wash my hands for 20 seconds. So, Yes, ooh, he's right. Wash your hands, meaning wash your hands from the things that I willingly do against God. The things that I put my hands to that I know that I shouldn't be doing. And then he says, purify your hearts. Well, what does that mean? Purify your hearts from thinking that you're going to receive salvation or rescue from anything or anything, someone, something else, rather than him. We're not going to find rescue or salvation in anyone else but Jesus. So we need to purify our hearts from that. And then he gets into this spot and says, basically, he just says, get really serious about your sin. No more shrugging it off and saying, oh, well, you know, that's just me. But get serious about it. The Amplified Bible on verse 9 says this, Be miserable and grieve and weep over your sin. Let your foolish laughter be turned to mourning and your reckless joy to gloom. We don't talk about this very often, do we? But this is being, being serious about our relationship with God. And what's happening in Ashbury is a bunch of students who are getting serious about their relationship with Jesus. Many of them, they're going to college just because this is what I'm supposed to do. This is how it's going to launch me into my world to help me build my kingdom. And what they're finding out is I'm supposed to be living for his kingdom. And I'm not supposed to be doing whatever I want to do. I need to be doing what he wants me to do. And so they are encouraging each other to have a posture of radical humility. To live this life knowing it's not about us, but it's all about Jesus. And it's in this radical humility that is when we'll be lifted up. That's the promise of James. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and you will be lifted up. Lord, this morning, we humble ourselves. We wash our hands. We purify our hearts. Lord, I thank you that your Holy Spirit is our comfort, is our peace. I thank you that he is our teacher. I thank you that he is the one who corrects us. So, Lord, this morning, if there's any correcting that needs to happen in us today, would you lead us? Would you teach us? Would you guide us? Would you show us? Thank you for being patient with us, God. God, I thank you that it is your heart that no one would spend eternity without you. And Lord, we pray the song that we sang earlier today, that your kingdom would come. God, that your will would be done on earth, right here. That your will would be done in our lives right now as it is in heaven. And we join together with the students in Ashbury, and we take a radical posture of humility and repentance this morning.
Thanking you that you are a patient God. Thanking you that you are for us and not against us. Thanking you that you pour out your grace to us. That we don't have to work or earn anything. We just have to turn our heads towards you and say yes. And you have everything for us, God. Everything for us. And we pray this in your name. Amen. All right, turn over to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse... We're going to actually read uh, verses 8 and 9 just real quick to kind of get us caught up because we had a week break. By the way, I forgot to say something. For those of you online, good morning. I forgot to say that at the very beginning. And I actually told my mom I'd say hi this morning. I talked to her on the way in, and there's sickness in the house, and so she's watching from home, and so... I gave her my famous line, see me later, as, I, as I'm hanging up. And so, good morning. We pray for Aiden this morning in Jesus' name. Verse 8 says, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And when we, when we read a passage like this, we understand that God's timing is not our timing. And what encourages me about this passage is that God's heart for people, man, as, I, as I'm reading the Old Testament, it's, even in my position, it's hard for me sometimes. We have to stop and look at each other and say, this is hard. We heat our house with wood, firewood. That's how we heat our house. Yeah. Might be calling you, Bob. Might need more wood. No, we're good. And so I get wood. We get wood often. We wheelbarrow it from the woodshed all the way up. We stack it on the deck, and then we stack it into this undercover thing that we have. And we do that every day. And we're kind of in this place right now where the Lord is really calling us to honor Sabbath, and it's difficult sometimes on Sundays, but that is our Sabbath. That's what we say our Sabbath is, so we're trying not to work. We're not working, and so, but I'm always trying to make excuses, like, well, let me just work for an hour. Let me just go out to, the, let, me, let me go get wood or whatever, and so we're reading this week about a guy on the Sabbath getting wood, and you know what they do to him? They don't just say, like, Hey, don't do that. Hey, it's Sabbath. Go, it's Shabbat. Go. No, they take him out. Literally, they take him out. And, I'm like, and as we're reading that, I get this encouragement from the other person in the room, and I'm not going to tell you who that is. Like, don't get wood on the Sabbath. All right, so I got a bunch of wood yesterday, and we're all stocked up. We're good to go. God is serious about our relationship with him. And why is God serious about Sabbath? Is because if, it wasn't, if he didn't say, hey, you need to take a rest time, we wouldn't. We would get so distracted and so busy with our own lives, and like I said, building our own kingdoms, that we, we would forget and we do forget about his kingdom. And so it's really important to be able to take a break. And I don't know how you do that in your world. Maybe just start little. You know, it goes back to like the whole tithing thing. 
I don't know if I could do that right out of the gate. I don't know if I could give 10%. Then I'm just going to encourage you. Then start little. Some, of, some people might disagree, but I'm just saying take a step towards obedience. Just take a step towards it. And then you'll find yourself stepping in obedience because you're going to find yourself that's where Jesus is. When we're obedient to him, that's where he's at because he is a just God. His timing is not our timing. That's what we see in this passage. And what we're going to see as we continue to read about what God's plans are for this world, we're also going to see what our responsibilities are going to be while he's doing what he's doing. Let's read verses 10 through 13. (laughs) I just have to say before we do this, I know, church, this is heavy stuff. But this is good stuff for us. And I'm already praying about where we're going next. And the Lord's given me some direction. And I'm like, can we just do something happy for a while? (laughs) But revival is going to start where? It's going to start in the church. It's going to start with us. It's going to start with us getting serious about who our God is and who we are in him. It's going to take that radical posture to, and to humble ourselves before him and to repent and turn towards him. In verse 10, chapter 3, 2 Peter, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and the speed it is coming. That day will bring about destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. The good news, he's making things new. A new heaven and a new earth. The bad news is life as we know it is going to no longer exist. <laughs> and some of you might say, that's not bad news. That's actually good news. I'm tired of the life that I, I know of. And I think for some of you that said, I'm ready for that. You are walking with Jesus right now. You're ready. I tell him daily, Jesus, you can come back anytime. If you're out waiting for my permission... You can come back anytime. I used to not have that. I used to say, would you wait? Because I want to. I want to. How will this happen? Peter describes here, it will be unexpected. We won't be looking for it. That's why he tells us to be looking, to be expectant. He, he describes it like a thief, which reminds me of when Jesus was talking in Matthew 24. So I am going to ask you to turn back in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. It is the first book in the New Testament, page 851. If you have a church black Bible, Jesus is speaking here. And he says this in verse 36. But about the day and the hour, no one knows. Jesus is talking about his return. I'm coming back. About the day or the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in the heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. For 
in those days, in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving to marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. This is how it will be when the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken, the other left. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will, will come. But understand this. If an owner of the house had known at the time of the night that the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Jesus is coming back, church. Not our job to predict when, not our job to try to figure, all that, figure out all the details about his coming back. Our job is to be ready. Jesus said, be ready. It's going to be quickly. It's going to be unexpected. Everyday life is going to be happening, and all of a sudden, he's going to be here. And that's why one is walking in the field. There's just two people walking. The person that knows Jesus, living for him, walking with him, they will be the ones that are taken with Jesus. It's the ones that are not living for him, don't know him, who will be left behind. It's all kinds of movies about that, by the way. It will be unexpected. It will be like a thief, Jesus said. And Peter tells us our responsibility in the midst of the chaos of what's going on. When all this stuff is going on, what is our responsibility? And he really actually makes it super simple. First of all, he asks a great question. When all this stuff is going on, when the world is literally melting away, he says, what kind of people ought you be? So in the midst of absolute chaos, which sounds really familiar right now, church, what is our responsibility? How are we supposed to be living our lives? And verse 11, the answer to what kind of people we ought to be in the meantime is we're supposed to live holy and godly lives. Live holy and godly lives. Now, some of you might say, yeah, that's, that's great. And then many of us would say, well, what does that look like? Sounds great. I want to live a holy life. I want to live a godly life. Well, what does that look like? Well, Peter just tells us that's what we're supposed to do. But as we search the scriptures, as you are living for him and his kingdom, he tells us very plainly what a holy life looks like, what a godly life looks like. And I have to say right from the start, it's not works, church. You cannot earn God's favor any more than you have it right now in front of you. He loves you. And that's why he gives us sometimes a hard message to listen to. It's because he has compassion for us. He doesn't want us to be caught up in the destruction. He wants us to be caught up in the rescue. He loves us. We cannot earn his favor anymore. There's nothing that we can do. We can't go out and do more. We just have to say yes to him and walk with him. What does a godly life look like? What does a holy life look like? Well, if we turn just one page back in 1 Peter, 
verse, chapter 1, verse 5. Because we have been given this amazing faith that, and His divine power has been given to us that we can participate in what He is doing in the world that we live in right now. He says, for this reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness. You want to know what it means to walk with God, to, to live a godly life, to live a holy life? First of all, we can't live a holy life in and of ourselves. I just have to say. We can only live a holy life in Christ. Our holiness, if you add up our holiness individually, amounts to the worst of the worst, actually, the Bible says. He actually calls it filthiness. Our best of the best of the best that we have to offer is filthy. And not filthy in a good way back in the day. It's not good. And so that's why we need Jesus. And it's because of his righteousness, because of his holiness. And when we surrender and follow him, his righteousness and holiness somehow now shields us and covers us. It's awesome. So we add to our faith goodness. And to that goodness, knowledge. And to knowledge, self-control. And to self-control, perseverance. And to perseverance, godliness. And to godliness, mutual affection, meaning love for one another, a genuine love. And to mutual affection, love, unconditional love for one another and for those that God brings into our life. That's one of the first things we do. We need to be proactive. How do we live a godly and holy life? We need to be proactive in our faith. We need to allow the Holy Spirit to flow through us and allow His gifts and His, the, the, I would just say the fruit of who He is to flow through us. And we talked about that last week a little bit, two weeks ago. The love, to, to love, to have that joy, to have that peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness self-control. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So how do I live a godly and holy life? I die to myself. I proactively die to myself. Again, reading through the Old Testament, and you just see all the different sacrifices and how God detailed that and set that up. It's humbling to read through that, and I'm so thankful that I don't have to live in that time. Because now we have one sacrifice, and that sacrifice was Jesus for us. But because Jesus sacrificed for us, we are asked to do the same. Romans 12 says to offer our ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing and holy and acceptable to God. And that is our worship. So to know that we're not living this life for ourselves, we've been crucified with Christ. My life is not my own anymore as a believer in Christ. I'm here to do what he wants me to do. First Peter 1 says to be holy because I am holy. Impossible. But we're holy because of what he's done for us. We're holy because of what God has already done. We can't be holy on our own. We can only be holy in Christ. It is his gracious work in us and for us. 
How do we live godly and holy lives? Romans 12, 2. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. So easy to get caught up into what the world is doing. I just want to be accepted. I just want to be part of something. And we get caught up in all this stuff. Do not copy the behavior and customs of the world, Paul says in Romans. But let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. And that, what's happening in Asbury is these kids are finding out like, and they're young, right? But they're just discovering like, I am tired of living life on my own and trying to do this on my own. I need help. And they are asking Jesus for help. 2 Peter chapter 1 talks about that list, adding to our faith and perseverance is one of them. So as followers in Christ live in godly and holy lives, we must persevere. We must persevere. Galatians 6, 9 and 10. So let's not allow ourselves to get fatigued by doing good. At the right time, we will harvest a good crop if we don't give up or quit. Right now, therefore, every time we get a chance, let us work for the benefit of all, starting with the people closest to us in the community of faith. Perseverance. Hebrews 10, 23 and 25 says, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we are to spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as the day, as we see the day approaching. Not giving up, not quitting, holding unswervingly to the hope that we profess. And not, we need to gather as the church. Now, we're a few years past COVID, even though we had kind of a COVID hangover, but we're a couple years past serious COVID. And statistics are now starting to roll out of kind of some of the repercussions. One of the repercussions as far as church goes, 20%, conservatively. Church attendance has dropped at least 20%. COVID gave excuses for us to stay home to get distracted with other things, and now it's really hard to peel away from those things and go to church. This isn't a guilt trip here. For those of you watching at home, it's not a guilt trip. But it's a reality, and the Bible says that we need to gather together. Why? It's because you have things to offer that I don't have. We together can make a difference in our community. We together also help each other and encourage one another. In fact, the word here is spur. And if you're a cowboy, that like, wow, really? I get to kick you along? Sometimes. I've been kicked along before. Like, I need, you need to be doing better, Kevin. You need to do better what you're dedicating your life to, the way you're living, the track you're going, is not going to lead you to a good place. I'm, I'm spurring you. I'm spurring you over 
Inside the church, we are supposed to encourage one another to live holy and godly lives. I'm not going to stand on the street corner and, and be barking and yelling at the cars driving by. They don't even know about Jesus. My job is to love them, not bark at them. Inside the church, oh, there might be a little barking once in a while. Because we're supposed to spur one another on to making better decisions, spur one another on to what it means to live for his kingdom. So this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. We are to be proactive. We're to be fruit bearers. We're to be faith-focused. We're to be people who persevere. Our lives should be different now that we know Jesus than it was before. Again, not, not works-based, but just because of the grace of God in us, our lives will be different. He will slowly work on us if we say yes to him. Sometimes it's not so slow. I've heard miraculous things like people who live lives completely opposite from God. And when they got saved, just immediately things, addictions, the way they talked, the things, just all that stuff just literally dropped off them. But I also know some people that it's been a slower process and God just one at a time is taking those things away. Jesus is coming back, and Peter's encouragement to us is the people that we ought to be is people living for him, living for his kingdom, living for his glory. I think the trap we get into at times when we hear about Jesus coming back is we start asking when, and we want to know how. A lot of speculation. A lot of speculation. Don't have time to go there today. But Jesus simply said, it will be unexpected, it will be fast, so be ready. That was Jesus. what Jesus told us. Peter tells us that in the meantime, we need to be living for him. Live for him. Amen? Stand with me this morning, would you? Peter talks about a new heaven and a new earth. Reminded me of the passage in Revelation. I wasn't going to read it this morning, but we're going to read it. They're prepping food right now, so if you're hungry, boy, there's food for you. Revelation chapter 21, John writes down what he saw. And this is Jesus speaking from his throne in heaven. And I love the King James Version because he says, Behold, I am making all things new. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, John writes. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea. I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. 
Some of the best promises in the word of God is right here. That he's with us. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You guys know me. That's a lot of tears. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said, it is done. Jesus said, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this. And I will be their God, and they will be my children. Love that, church. And as I read that this week, over and over, that's where I want to be, but there is a verse 8. And I hesitate to go there, but I'm going to go there. Because seven verses are the promises of God's faithfulness to us. For those of us that say yes to him. I mean, the promise of no more tears or pain or death or sorrow. So good. The promise is that he is with us. Verse 8 says, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexual immoral... Those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to a fiery lake of burning sulfur. And this is the second death. This is Jesus speaking from his throne. And what we take from this this morning is God wants us to know that he's with us. And he offers relationship and life to us. So take him up on that. But those who say no to him, it's not, just, I'm just going to say, don't say no to God. I'm just going to say it. Just don't say no to him. Say yes to him. Whether you're at home, whether you're in this room now, whether you're watching at another time, say yes to him. If you're already following him, if you already know him, you still need to say yes to him. He has new things for you. He didn't just save you and then put you on a shelf. He has plans for you. The Bible says that he has already got, gone ahead of you, and he's got things for you to do. It does start with a simple yes to Jesus, if you've never said yes to him before. God, help us to be proactive. Help us to be fruit bearers to be faith-focused. God, I pray for perseverance this morning. I pray for changed lives this morning. And may we take Peter's words to heart, and may we look forward to the day of your coming. And as we look forward to that day, may we live for you and for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.
Hey, this morning, if you need prayer for anything, we would love to come alongside you and pray for you. Uh, maybe for some of, some of you this morning, it's taking that radical posture of humility before him. And we have time. The tables are already set up. Food is being prepped. We would just love to pray for you, walk with you, uh, wherever you're at. Amen? Amen. All right, blessings.